And I had a painting professor who told me that he was going to give me a D. And he said, I should fail you, but I don't ever want to see you again. And welcome to the 15th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. My guest this week is Aaron Coleman, professor of art at the University of Arizona. Aaron has been on my list to get on this pod pretty much since day one, because he's just the fucking coolest. His work is a drop-dead standout from what anyone else is doing. At SGCI Open Portfolios, it can be difficult to even get to his table because of the crowd. It's stunningly rendered, wicked sharp politically, and full of a seemingly chaotic mix of medieval, renaissance, and pop culture imagery. And what makes it truly fascinating for printmakers to look at, particularly in person, is that it can be hard to decipher which techniques Aaron has used to create his prints. Mesotint, lithography, digital, intaglio, and screen print all weave in and out of his practice with stunning deafness. For anyone who has been following him on his Instagram, you might have noticed that recently he's revealed a series of incredible sculptures, which more than prove his skills in that medium as well. They are truly amazing, and if you haven't seen them yet, please follow a link in the show notes to take a look. But for the love of God, Aaron, please don't abandon us over here in Prince. In this interview, we talk about his early art influences in the hip-hop community, being tricked into loving lithography by Michael Barnes, and the role of art in the political resistance. Aaron has this unique way of speaking that makes me feel, simultaneously, that everything is completely fucked up and it's going to be okay. I know you're going to love it. But before we dive in, here's some quick housekeeping. First and foremost, if you haven't had a chance to check out the new Pine Copper Lime online print gallery, give her a gander. I have beautiful work there from artists from all over Southeast Asia and Australia. And I still have the offer going on for listeners of Pine Copper Lime to get free shipping, including international shipping, with the offer code SHUN. That's right, as in the non-believers. That's S-H-U-N. I also have the Pine Copper Lime Patreon up and buzzing, with levels starting at just a dollar a month and gifts like postcards, stickers, tote bags, and more. But mostly, becoming a Patreon supporter is just a great way of saying, hey, I like PCL, I like that it exists, and I'd like to help it keep existing. And, as always, you know I'll love you forever if you tell a printmaker or two about Pine Copper Lime, and see if we can't grow this community even more. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join the party. And one last exciting announcement... The next episode of PCL, I'm going to be trying something a little different. It's going to be a bilingual double release. One version of the interview in English and the other in Spanish. My guest for this is Marco Sanchez, 
a Mexican-born printmaker currently getting his MFA at Enver University, but grew up on the border town of El Paso, Texas. His prints address a number of things, like his relationship to his mentors, such as his grandfather, to his cultural background and Mexican folklore, and most recently, he's been exploring the notion of immigrant identity in the current political climate of the United States. So make sure to join me then as well. It's going to be a fiesta. All right, without further ado, here's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, how's it going? Good. How you doing? I'm really good. I'm good. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, of course. I'm super excited to chat. Um, so before we dive into some questions, would you mind just introducing yourself briefly and letting the listeners know who you are and where you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm Aaron Coleman, and I'm a human being, <laughs> and I am on planet Earth. But more specifically, uh, I'm a professor of art uh, at the University of Arizona. I'm a printmaker, collage artist, uh, draw stuff. I paint stuff sometimes, but I make pretty terrible paintings. Yeah, I do all kinds of stuff. That's good. And how long have you been at the U of A? I am finishing my third year right now. Wow, so it's still still a pretty new position. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that, though. <laughs> in, a good, in a good way. Totally, totally. Well, I hope that that means that you're, um, you're settling in nicely, I think. Yeah. I think, um, in a, I think um, my permanent state is settled in, no matter where <laughs> I'm at. That's a very good quality to have, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's very zen of you. Well, I'd also love to hear you talk a little bit about sort of your early art influences growing up, where that was, and, you know, what role art had in your childhood and anything like that. Oh, man, those are big questions. Um, I was born in Washington, D.C., and I grew up in Waldorf, Maryland. I, I'm not too sure art uh, had any influence on my childhood whatsoever. You know, I was like kind of a bad kid i was a good kid but i was also bad mm. i was just like running around taking the wheels off of people's lawnmowers <laughs> and trying to make go-karts out of them and um i would like take my mom's watches apart i would like take the back off and take all the little pieces out and then i wouldn't be able to put them back together you know i had a twin sister that i got into a lot of stupid stuff with so i i mean i wasn't really like artistic or art or, or aware of art as a kid i was just kind of like a curious mischievous little guy and when I got to be about 12 or 13, we moved to Indianapolis. And, uh, you know, my, my mom took a job in Indianapolis, so we moved. And I was kind of introduced to the hip-hop scene and the graffiti scene around 13 or 14. And I think that was, like, my real first introduction to creative culture and visual art, if you will. And so it, it didn't really come into my world until I was like an early teenager. Yeah. How did that introduction happen? Well, I, I, had, I have four brothers, two of which uh, lived with me for a long time, older brothers. And they always listened to hip hop, but I think I was kind of like too young to really be into it. And so it wasn't until I got a little older, you know, I would like steal CDs from them. And that, this was around like 12, 13, 14. Uh, and I started listening to the music that they were listening to when I was younger. 
I kind of fell in love with just hip hop culture and the music and breakdancing and DJs. But a big part of hip hop culture is graffiti. And a lot of the guys that I went to school with were into graffiti. And so that that was kind of how I found my way into that world. Uh, and before I knew it, you know, I was writing my name on stuff that uh, didn't belong to me and climbing up billboards and, you know, going into the train yard in the middle of the night and all that kind of stuff. I was never really any good, but there was something about hip hop culture and graffiti culture that, you know, this idea that you could take from things that already existed and like piece them back together in a new way. You know, like in hip hop, they're taking old music and making new music via sampling. Mm. Uh, and in graffiti, they're, you know, graffiti writers are, are kind of borrowing the environment around them to make it look the way they want or put their own message out there. So there's something really interesting to me about pulling from things that already existed to create something new. And so that's that's kind of why I attached myself to that world. And so that was sort of your your first experience in visual making was just yeah. really with a, yeah. a spray can or a big permanent Sharpie marker or something like that? Yeah, we were a little more devious than that. We would, <laughs> we would fill... Uh, like refillable markers with glass etch and, and tag <gasps> windows and actually etch our name into windows and oh, things man. like that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we found out that uh, the lava rocks around a McDonald's drive-thru, like if you ever look at the ground around a McDonald's drive-thru, there's a bunch of lava rocks on the curb, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, we found out that those rocks could like scratch into almost anything. And so we started using those to tag things that seemed like untaggable. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I wonder if the McDonald's Corporation has any idea the uh, creative contribution yeah, it's making. Not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. probably not. That is so interesting. And then so how did you go from that to, to art school? You know, I, well, to be a good graffiti writer, you you really have to like not give a fuck about anything. <laughs> you know, I, you're like running from police all the time. Uh, you're out late at night. You have to be out when no one else is around uh, if you want to get up. And it, it makes things like normal relationships kind of difficult because, you know, graffiti is is kind of irrational and aggressive and a normal-minded person might not understand the urge to go out and write your name on things or destroy property or whatever it is we were doing. And so you really have to not give a fuck about a lot of everyday normal things. And so I got sick of running from cops and I got sick of, uh, you know, being afraid of getting arrested every time I was out tagging something. I just didn't have that, like, I don't give a fuck bone in my body. And so I just wanted to do something that was less, I don't want to say dangerous, but, you know, less dangerous, less, less likely to get me in trouble. And also something that maybe seemed a little bit more legitimate, something that I could make a living doing. So I decided to go to art school, which yeah. if I had known then, if I had known then, how hard it is to make a living as an artist, I maybe chose something different. Really? <laughs> Going to be a chemical engineer or something? I, yeah, why not? <laughs> mm -hmm. I get mad at my parents all the time. I'm like, what were you thinking when you decided it was okay for me to go to art school? You know, you know it's funny. I, I kind of feel that way. I have those same sort of thoughts sometimes where I'm like, you know, my parents were always like just, do what you want and the money will come and follow, you know, follow your heart. And now that I'm like 34 and only have like $1,500 in savings, I'm like, you lied to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
but then again, like I also love where I am and what I do and, and our community and all of that. But yeah, I've had similar thoughts of like, God damn fucking supportive hippie 60s parents. Like, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my mother's a government employee. My father was a, a procurement lawyer. And I'm just like, what were you thinking? Like, what? <laughs> totally. And I know it's not there, not there. Yeah. And I'm happy. I like what I do. Definitely. I definitely could be financially better off. That's for sure. <laughs> Tell me how you came to printmaking. It's probably kind of a boilerplate answer, maybe. But I thought graphic design, okay, this makes sense. You know, coming from graffiti background, writing words and text on things. I'll, I'll try graphic design. I did not like being told how to make an idea better. It's not that I didn't like being told how to make an idea better. I didn't like being told that like 10 times in a row. Um, mm. So you make a design for an advertisement and then it gets kicked back to you and they say, well, can you move this here and push this up here and make this this color instead of that color? And you say, sure. And then you do it again and then they say, okay, now can you move this and do that and do this thing? And you say, okay, sure. And then you get it back a third time and they're like, okay, how about – and before you notice, know, not your design anymore. Right. So that got really annoying to me. And I switched to painting, but I'm not a good painter. I don't, it's funny because I have tremendous patience with printmaking, but I don't have any patience for painting. So I end up with these like swampy, mushy, brown canvases within like five minutes because I try to put all the color painting at the same time. And I had a painting professor who told me that he was going to give me a D and he said, I should fail you, but I don't ever want to see you again. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, maybe this isn't for me. Uh, so I took a printmaking class and, you know, I think like most printmakers, the thing that really draws us in is the community. You know, you talk about keeling over on a press and the thing is everybody in the shop has to use that press. Uh, everybody has to use the stones. Everybody has to use the acid bath. And these are things that are too expensive or too dangerous or too heavy to have in your own home studio, like everything you need uh, to make a print isn't really available to everyone. And so printmaking revolves around these community spaces where a lot of people can come and use equipment and materials and chemicals in a group setting. And so I think that that sense of community just kind of is contagious and it, it caught me immediately. And where were you for your undergrad? I was at Heron School of Art and Design in Indianapolis. And so the, some folks may know um, David Morrison, who's kind of virtuoso, but an incredible lithographer, meticulous lithographer. And Meredith Setzer is there. She makes really amazing work on on felt. She's like hand making felt and printing etchings and screen prints and relief prints on felt and then making these immersive installations. And Andrew Winship is there. So I had some good uh, mentors there. I would say that one of the things that, that you're known for is like your really beautiful lithography so it sounds like you had some really good introduction there and then <laughs> yeah not really though not really oh, okay <laughs> it would make, like a, a to b to c would be the the logical uh train of thought but it was more like a to x back to b again <laughs> like i i was there for seven i was in undergrad for seven years i was at heron for four years and i didn't work with david morrison until my last year there and so I had been I had been working in printmaking for four years already, and I hadn't really made any lithographs, but I was I was working in lithography 
that last year and David Morrison came up behind me and you know you have to remember I've only known him for a few weeks at this point and he he like kind of slaps me on the back <laughs> with his giant bear paw hand and uh he says well Coleman we might make a printmaker out of you yet <laughs> and I thought what do you mean yet? I've been making prints this whole time I've been here but apparently I had just made something worth a compliment so <laughs> gotcha gotcha so then from from there though you went to grad school and you worked with Michael Barnes is that correct yeah, he was at Northern Illinois University, and um, David Morrison, <clears throat> my last semester there, said, you need to go study with Michael Barnes. And I said, who's that? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. <laughs> and then I, I got to grad school, and Mike is a, an amazing human being. Uh, he's like one of the most caring mentors I've ever had. He's hilarious. He has a temper. He's just a really dynamic amazing individual and he's kind of the opposite when it comes to lithography as david morrison he, he's like the opposite of him um so you know where david morrison would have me etching my stone with six different etches and six different paintbrushes uh michael barnes would just throw one etch on the whole stone and rub it around for a minute and say okay you're good to go it was like really opposite perspectives and so now i kind of work in between the two i think yeah, and how was grad school for you? Did you find it like a really productive time or intimidating time or fun or I wouldn't say it wasn't it was intimidating. It wasn't intimidating not because I think I'm good at what I do, but because I'm kind of oblivious to shit like that. <laughs> like I'll just walk into a situation and not really pay attention to what's going on. I'm just there to do a thing. Mm. And so I went to grad school and I was there to do a thing, which was make stuff and get out. And so whether I was good or not didn't cross my mind. So I wasn't really intimidated until I had my first critique with Mike. And I, we all had our work up on the wall. And I was talking for about five minutes about the work I was making. And he from the back of the room said, This is boring. <gasps> and I was oh like, my gosh. I was like, uh, okay. Uh, and, you know, he was like, You're not in this work at all. I don't, I don't see you in this work. You know, like, what do you care about? And, so that pissed me off kind of, but then also maybe was my first understanding of what grad school was and why I was there. And every critique after that uh, was bad. Mike once told me that my work was contrived and predictable. Ashley Nason was a printmaking professor there at the time, and she told me that my work looked like it belonged in a head shop. So I got beat up a lot while I was there, and you know my work changed a lot, and uh, we were in DeKalb, Illinois which is about an hour and a half outside of Chicago. And so it's kind of just out of reach of the city. And so I spent a lot of time in DeKalb with my head down making work because I didn't feel like commuting to the city. And so coming out of those rough critiques, I just made work. I made a ton of work. And it wasn't until my last semester there that, you know, Mike kind of, he, he finally liked what I was making. He, uh, he came over to me and he said, there's a job position opening at Southern Illinois University, and it's a lithography position, and you need to apply for it, but that means you have to make some lithographs. And I think I think he was kind of trying to trick me into making lithographs, <laughs> because I hadn't really made any since I had been in grad school. And so my last semester, I started making these lithographs, and that is kind of the work that most people know me for right now. So it really wasn't like, like litho was your, was your lady love from go, it sounds like. You had a no. couple of, of mentors who kind of were like a little bit forcibly moving your hand that way. Yeah, people refer to me as a lithographer a lot. And they're not wrong. I, I do make lithographs, but 
I went all the way through undergrad, uh, having not made a lithograph until my last semester. And then I went all the way through grad school, having not made a lithograph until my last semester. Mm -hmm. And so I had these big chunks of time with no uh, lithography experience until like the very end of working with a specific mentor. And they kind of just pushed me in that direction. And so then how did it kind of become such a prominent part of your practice, you know, even after you didn't have to do it to apply for a job, or you didn't have to do it for these other reasons? Did you then just find that you you did have a, a genuine connection with it? Or are you one of the people who just, you know, you just love drawing? What What is it about lithography that makes it so consistent in what you do? There's a lot of things. I, I do love drawing, but I don't I don't really consider what I do drawing. Um, so maybe I don't know, that might be another whole nother conversation. But hmm. I think what I like most about lithography is the versatility. So you know, you can make a reductive lithograph, you can make an additive lithograph, you can make a photo lithograph, you can do all kinds of transfer methods. Um, you know, things lithography has this ability to weave in and out of painting and drawing and printmaking and the digital and a facsimile. And I mean, it's, it's so versatile. And I think that's really what connects me to it is this, this ability to make a lithograph look like a screen print or to make it look like an etching or to make it look like a woodcut. You know, you can do whatever you want to a stone and it's not as easy to do whatever you want to say a, a woodcut or a screen print. Intaglio is pretty flexible, but mm -hmm. you know, if, if you, if you, if anybody were to look at the work that I make, they would see a lot of lithography, but they'd also see all of these other processes that weave in and out and they'd see me trying to make lithography look like other processes. So I, yeah, I think the versatility is what really draws me to it. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really apt way to describe part of your aesthetic is, especially when you see it just in reproduction online, you know, you'll look at one of your prints and you'll say, okay, is this screen print or is this a lithograph or is this a mezzotint? And the answer might be, well, yeah, but it could also be that you're, even within that, it can be difficult to see what is what, I think. Um, again, particularly like in re yeah, in reproduction yeah. when you're not getting the, the textures that you can get in person. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes people ask, well, what is this? And the answer is simply, this is a lithograph. And then there are other times where the answer is, well, this is mesotint, aquatint, uh, with a photo litho shinkole. And they're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? And you know, I think part of what I really like about printmaking is the ability to disguise the medium. You know, mm. like paint really exposes itself as a material. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing, in my opinion. I, I don't really care either way. But I make work that is political in nature. It borrows from things that already exist to talk about history and, and social political current events. And so for me, being able to hide the fact that something is a lithograph or a screen print or a mezzotint takes it away from being just like this art thing that I made and makes people question what it is they're looking at. Like, is this an artifact or is this, you know, something new? Is it a propaganda poster? They, they can't tell what they're looking at. And I like that. I like being able to disguise the medium. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your work specifically 
and particularly when you were talking earlier about graffiti and that kind of borrowing and the remixing and that kind of hip-hop culture, it's suddenly had a light bulb on for me for what you do in your prints where it's like you might see a toga and then you might see a comic book and then you might see something from the Renaissance or early 20th century. And it really is very cleverly remixed into an image that is its own thing. Do you think that that does come from your early art roots or is this just something that is of interest to you to to be a part of a, a broader dialogue? Oh yeah, it's it's definitely a direct influence from my interest in hip hop culture and graffiti culture. You know, I talk a lot of, when I when I give lectures, I talk a lot about how the first place where I felt comfortable was in the hip hop scene. And, you know, I, I grew up biracial, black father, white mother. And so I've always felt a little bit out of place. I always felt like I was kind of in between worlds. And hip hop, it just ignores all of that, mm. right? You might have like a sitar playing against Clyde Stupplefield drums with a Doris Day vocal sample over it. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? And it's yeah, like totally. all of a sudden you have all these cultures and genres of music and eras in history all blending together. And so that was the first time I felt like I could exist between worlds confidently and not feel like I didn't belong somewhere, but that I might belong wherever I want to belong. And so that definitely impacts the way I see the world the way I process the world, the things that I put into the world, the things that I create and then put out into the world, it, it influences all of that. Um, and so when I start uh, thinking about making work, the same way I thought when I was going to start making music, you know, I made music for about a decade and I would listen and look and, and think about things around me and try to figure out how to use those things in my music. So those birds that you heard when I was outside earlier, mm. I would be wondering how I could use those birds in a song. You know, there was a time where I had a friend who lived in this, this old historic home and in the basement, there was like a big empty oil drum, some kind of big metal barrel. I don't know what it was for. And we used that as the bass drum in a song. We just went downstairs and, <laughs> and banged on it and recorded that sound and used it as a bass drum. And so that same kind of like pulling from the world around you is what I do in my visual work right now. Yeah. And, you know, while I'm pretty familiar with some of your work in recent years and you've seen different time periods of imagery come up, you know, from sort of like stained glass to what your new body of work, which looks like sort of maybe sort of like minstrel characters. Is that what I'm seeing in those? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but the one thing that seems consistent through all of it, even when you're almost completely abstracted, is this kind of comic book aesthetic. So I'd love to hear you maybe talk about why that particular theme is so consistent in a practice such as yours that's so visually diverse. Yeah, it didn't occur to me until recently that when I was a kid, my brother had figures from comic books pasted all over his bedroom wall. Like he would cut them out of the comics and stick them to his bedroom wall. And that's really not like significant in any way. It's just kind of weird because I inherited his comic books when I got older and he was gone. And I had all these comics with the heroes cut out of them, <laughs> which is kind of strange. It's a strange way to see a comic. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe that like planted some seed that I am just now realizing. But it really started when Mike Barnes told me that my work was boring. And he asked me, where are you in this work? Mm -hmm. You know, he, he wanted to know 
where my life was, where my experiences were. Because when I got to art school, all of that experience in the hip hop world, all of that experience in the graffiti world just disappeared. You know, I, I left it all behind for some reason, thinking that it wasn't valid experience hmm. or it wasn't important experience or important enough to talk about in the art world or it wouldn't be taken seriously. And so when he asked me that question, it made me think about all the things that I was interested in before art school. And so text started to come back into the work as kind of a, a hangover from writing music and writing lyrics and also from the graffiti world and painting text on walls. Uh, and then lowbrow culture started to find its way back into my work, you know, as a hangover from street art and graffiti. And so comics or this kind of like lowbrow kind of cultural phenomena. And, and so that started to enter my work. Um, and the very first comic book image I ever used was from the death of Superman, where Doomsday defeats Superman. And in that book, uh, Superman dies. And then there's the return of Superman where he's resurrected. Hmm. And at the time, Obama was being reelected or potentially being reelected. And there were all these religious extremists coming out of the woodwork and pushing all these political policies based on the Christian faith, you know, abortion laws, um, birth control, all kinds of things. Uh, but they, all of these things were founded in their beliefs as Christians. And so I thought, here we have Superman, who is this idealized figure who's been sent to earth by his father to kind of take care of mankind he dies he's resurrected you know it's very similar yeah, to the story yeah. of christianity but no one's ever killed anybody over superman you know we don't have the lgbtq plus community being persecuted based in someone's beliefs in superman and so really what struck me is that a lot of political policy and scientific study and social norms are structured around Christianity and a painting of Christ is an illustration in the same way that a painting of Superman is an illustration, mm -hmm. right? They're both somebody's vision of what this figure looks like, but the belief system surrounding those figures couldn't be further away from each other on the spectrum. They're in a world of extremes, right? One is an entertainment and one is a belief system that has caused a lot of joy in the world, but also a ton of pain. And so that comparison became extremely interesting to me. You know, I've, I've never thought about Superman that way before. And now that you're, you're saying it, you know, even some of that imagery, if I imagine that iconic image of Superman dead, and just even the way he's sort of lying, I don't even yeah. know where, you know, is he being held even or something? I have this like very clear image of him, you know, the torn, uh, Caught the, yeah. the torn outfit and you know the limp body and it, it looks like the dissension from the cross yes, from exactly. you know so if you go if you go to my website there's a portfolio called autophagy and it's a series of digital prints that i made and all i was doing was taking paintings of saints and uh religious icons and finding comic book characters in the same exact pose hmm. and superimposing them on top of each other and there's a, a Caravaggio painting of Christ overlaid by a, a drawing of Superman. And they are in the exact same pose. And this happens over and over and over and over again. So if you're really curious, look at that body of work and you'll see 
why those comparisons became so interesting to me. And I think that the early Christian stories, they are so much more, I think, about entertainment than we realize. You know? Sure. Because it was like they didn't have anything else. People didn't have something to talk about. There was no, obviously, there was no YouTube or Netflix or texting you know, you go home, like, let's say, like, you know, you're living in the low countries in 1490, and you go home after, like, working in a field or something, and it, you just, you don't have anything except for you have these Bible stories, and you, these particularly yeah. these Catholic, you know, pre-Reformation Bible stories. And even, you know, early woodcuts of saints, you know, um, I can just imagine that they must have been traded the way a comic book might be even, you know, that it's sort of yeah, like, oh, sure. oh, you have you have a St. Francis? I love St. Francis, you know, I'll trade you for two, August you know, like St. Augustine's, like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, think about Zeus. I mean, it's like, there's always somebody that's willing to take advantage of something. And so the moment someone realized that Christianity could be used to make money or to enforce laws or to group certain people together or to exclude other people it became a strategic construct. But when you think about someone like Zeus, that is a superhero. You know, it's just like muscle-bound guy hurling lightning bolts from the sky. It's, it is. So you can only imagine if comic books had been developed in the 14th century, people would be believing in Superman. Totally. He would be the, he'd be the savior, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I use comic books for that reason, and I use stained glass imagery for similar reasons. I think stained glass windows are kind of the graphic novel or the comic book of the religious world. Right. You know, you have big, big, bright, bold colors, you know, heavy black outlines, simplified forms, idealized figures, stories of good and evil, morality, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah, I was raised just in a, in a very atheist house and if ever i'm but if ever i'm going by a church that's open you know in in a city really anywhere in the world i'll want to go in to see the stained glass yeah because uh, it's just incredible and it's funny how my my husband who grew up really catholic you know he he's like he'll humor me but he'll he'll be ready to leave pretty much as soon as we get in yeah and <laughs> i have this really, I guess it's just sort of just lucky to be able to just have a pure aesthetic appreciation of them and then also just a storytelling one. And I'm like, oh man, yeah, that guy, oh man, it didn't end well for him, did it? Is he holding his own head? Like, yeah. I just <laughs> love that kind of stuff. And I didn't even learn about any of the mythology until I was in graduate school learning about the history of printmaking. And you had to learn you know, that Northern Renaissance, you have to learn a lot of biblical stories. And yeah. it's like, these are so metal. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I grew up going to church and when I was about 15, I said, dad, I don't understand why I'm going here. Yeah. I don't understand any of the, the stories. None of this resonates with me. And he said, okay, well, you don't have to go anymore. And I said, cool, thanks. And that was the end of it. But I always liked the way it looked. I always liked the way it sounded. Mm -hmm. You know, the singing was always really impactful for me. The smell, the incense was really incredible. So, I mean, I have a kind of a, an affinity for churches and cathedrals and things like that. And I, I seek them out when I travel. But, you know, it's just the belief system behind it uh, didn't ever quite resonate with me. And that's really great that you came from a family that just 
understood that, you know, you faith is not something in any way that anyone, a child, a teenager, an adult, anyone can be forced into. Yeah, I, I meet a lot of people who see my work and think that I'm anti-religion or anti-Christian. And I'm really not. I'm none of those things. You know, I mm. I think if, if faith works for you, then it works for you. It's, it's when someone's faith starts to impact the life of someone else that I get frustrated and or angry. And that's that's a lot of what I make work about is those kinds of issues. I've always thought it was funny when people get really angry about people who have faith, because in my mind, it's always been like, like, look, if you're like, like an atheist atheist, you know, like those really hardcore atheists, and they're so mad about it. And I'm like, yeah, look, <laughs> look if like, if really nothing matters, right? If there's no universal truth, if there's no divine plan, if there's if there's no spirit after death, and then eventually, you know, the the sun is going to blow up and the earth is just going to, you know, return to a hunk of carbon. Why do you give a shit if these people yeah. <laughs> are like giving themselves some comfort and happiness by going to a pretty building once a week? Like <laughs> It's just, it seems kind of counter to, to their message in a funny way. Yeah, it's a world of extremes. You got one group on one side and one group on the other. And your work definitely, and your and your statement, you know, you touched on a little bit, but, you know, your artist statement particularly, it really gets into like, the earth is on the edge of environmental disaster and like, we're just kind of in this shit storm. And, you know, as you mentioned, LGBTQ plus communities being persecuted, economic inequality, um, racial inequality, all of these things that are super, it's, it's, you know, it always reminds me of that, that classic activist phrase, like, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So all of this, this absolute shitstorm is going on around us, and in really scary ways. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about where does art making fit into a world like this? Should we all put down our rollers and go be activists? Or where does does making fit into that? That could be a podcast in itself. It's a huge, <laughs> another huge topic. Totally. You know, like, well, maybe we can, we can have you back on for, for episode two and we'll just <laughs> yeah. dive into deep dive that one. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly aware of the fact that I make political work but, you know, I'm not throwing Molotov cocktails at cops. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's, I, I'm not on the front line of activism, so to speak. But I think activism and art, they both are, are like anything else in that you need different people for different jobs, right? You have, you have people in activism who are really good at speaking. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that you want with the megaphone in their hand. You have people who are really good at fundraising, and those are the people that you want on the phone making money for causes. And you have people who are really good at distilling all of these ideas and phrases and sentiments and issues into an image. And, you know, that you never know when a piece of art is going to spark some interest in an issue where it wasn't existing before. If a, if a group of students go on a field trip to a museum and they see a Theaster Gates fire hose painting, they're going to wonder why this guy is making paintings using discarded or decommissioned fire hoses. And that's going to bring up the history of police using 
fire hoses on African Americans in Chicago, you know? So it's like one thing leads to another. And I really think we need all the different kinds of brains we can get in an activist society. And so we need people on the front line. We need people documenting through visual culture, our history and our current times uh, for future generations to look back and have an image of what was going on. And we need all different voices in this uh, scenario. And so that's how I think visual culture fits in. I mean, even when you look at like the Black Panthers, you know, they had their artists working, uh, making images for each newspaper that they put out. Emery Douglas, he was a woodcut artist that made the imagery for the Black Panther newspaper. And so he put a voice and an image to very complex issues that maybe wouldn't have gotten across as quickly had you had to read an article about the issue. My father used to say it takes all types. And that phrase is really meant to dispel discrimination and say, like, it takes all types of people to make the world go round. But I believe that really fits with kind of any cultural facet that you exist in. And if, if an activist society is that, then it takes all types. It takes the fundraisers and the speakers and the organizers and the aggressors and the pacifists and the artists. And I think what you're saying about the artists as documentarians is hugely significant. And something I'd never thought of before is that, you know, when you think about a movement like the Black Panther movement, and it's like, what do you think of? Well, it's usually, at least probably for, for me and you and other visually driven people, you're thinking of these iconic images, you know, like, yeah. like the posters, like the people who are doing the photography documentation, like anything in that visual realm. And the images that kind of float to the top of our consciousness do capture so much more than just whatever the first two lines on Wikipedia are about a movement. Right. So I mean, if you yeah. say Black Panther, most people will think of a, a black fist in the air. You know, they're not going to think of Huey P. Newton mm -hmm. because a lot of people don't know who Huey P. Newton is, you know, but they know what a black fist in the sky means. And that is visual culture, right? That is a lasting bit of visual vocabulary that carries weight and meaning forever. I would think also, you know, you have your practice as a teacher as well. And I think that that could be, you know, a, again, maybe a, a much larger topic. But I think that being an influence and being a resource and a support for people who are about to kind of enter the world as the next leaders, and that's, you know, generalization. Obviously, there are people who go back to school older. Um, but for the most part, you know, you're dealing with with kids, you know, and being influence on them, that is a, a political and significantly um, influential part of helping the world, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not as simple as one might think. And I don't mean teaching. I mean, that that kind of like fostering of a culture or, you know, a culture creator or a political mind or, or something like that. It's, it's not as straightforward as that because I, I have to balance or move between different kinds of minds. And so I might have a student who is looking to voice their experiences as a queer brown person. Mm -hmm. um, and then I might have someone that comes from extreme privilege who wants to talk about the same issue. Right. And trying to figure out and help them figure out 
the appropriate ways to talk about their experiences or the things they care about is a really difficult job. And so I, I, I teach pretty straightforward media and practices, you know, printmaking and collage and things like that. But a big part of my job is facilitating the most authentic voice I can for each student. Here, an hour away from the border, those conversations are often political in nature. That's interesting because I'd kind of forgotten how close Tucson was until you just said that. Because I was there, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And of course, yeah. like I remember sitting on my sofa crying out of happiness with uh, Obama's re-election you know I think you know I remember like it was like this is so amazing we're doubling down you know on on uh on progress and then how that seems like a world away to the world that we're living in now and particularly when it comes to border issues um maybe not even particularly like it all it all seems like a a fucking world away now but but you know um that whole border politics has become so hot and so charged and so just sad and full of anger. Um, And yeah, Tucson, it really is. It's right there. Yeah. I mean, I have Hispanic students who are frustrated and they want to talk about those issues. I have Hispanic students who want to be Hispanic artists and not be expected to talk about those issues. Yeah. You know, and of course, both students have the right to do each of those things. And so that is just kind of a snapshot of the role that I have to play as a teacher in facilitating those kinds of uh, conversations. You know, I'm half black and half white. And one of the first things that I tell graduate students, my you know, African-American graduate students that come to our school or to any school is that you don't have to make work about being black. Just because you're black doesn't mean you have to make work about that. You can make work about whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And so I have to have that same conversation with indigenous students and Hispanic students and, you know, white students and like everybody. I can only imagine that being who I assume you're one of only a handful of people of color on the staff, because that's the way it is in most any university in America. That's got to certainly affect the way that you're asked to perform as a professor and then also the way the students see you and turn to you, particularly students of color. Yeah, 100%. You know, any university you go to, you're probably going to find a lack of diverse faculty. And it's kind of a cyclical situation. It's kind of perpetuates itself because you have minority students going to a university and not seeing any professors or mentors that look like them. So they don't feel like they belong there. So they either don't go to school or they don't continue on to graduate school. And even when they do continue on to graduate school, they may still not have a minority mentor. And so then they're not applying for the jobs. And so then the jobs are being taken by straight white men. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a system that repeats itself. And so mainly what I do or what I try to do is empower all my students, not just minority students, but everybody. I really want to instill in them that there is a place for their voice and what they do so that they feel included. They feel like they belong there so that they can move forward with everybody else. And it's like I said, it's not just minority students. It's it's minority. It's female. It's 
poor, it's queer, it's, I mean, anybody who has been historically marginalized needs to feel like this world is for them as much as it is for anyone else. That is super important and really beautiful, and I am so happy that you are a professor that students <laughs> can interact with and get access to, and, and it's just so important, and I think it speaks so strongly to that need for just more voices, more uh, life experiences in positions of power and in positions of influence. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's just going to have to be a great note to end on because the construction has started in my building and so I don't want it to <laughs> to be distracting um, and kind of drown out what you're saying but if uh, if you'd be open I would love to have you back on um, sometime again and we can do a deeper dive into some of these great great topics that we were chatting about yeah anytime of course Excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I know it's a, a really busy time for you, but um, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure to, to chat about all the things. Yeah, I totally agree. It was fun. Cool. All right. Talk to you soon. Well, that's my show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Marco Sanchez. And don't forget, it's going to be a special double release episode. One chat in English, the other in Spanish. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.